Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, team. I'm Dom Harvey. Welcome to my podcast, Runners Only. What you're listening to here is the Summer Series. Now, I've got to be completely transparent with you. Summer Series is a fancy name. It's basically a bullshit name. What you're about to listen to is a recap episode. It has been a massive year since the podcast launched way back in February 2022. Since then, there's been a total of 50 full-length episodes of Runners Only with 50 incredible New Zealanders, some of them famous, some of them household names, some of them people you've never heard of that just have fascinating stories. And my guess is not many people have listened to all of them. In fact, maybe you're here for the very first time, and if you are, welcome. So what I've done is I've got some highlights of each of these guests who so generously gave up some of their time, and I've put them together sort of as like a highlight or recap episode. Now what I do, before I go into the snippet of each guest, I'll say who they were and what episode they were on. So if you like the sound of them and you haven't heard that interview, you can go back and find it at ease in your own time. All right, let's get into it. Summer Series Part 3 from Episode 38. Former National Deputy Leader and Breast Cancer Survivor, Nikki Kay. You go for a yearly mammogram or? No, no, no. I was only 36. Right. So mammograms, um, I was too young. So I randomly, I just sort of, I, I had been a, feeling a bit unwell, but I sort of went like that, like almost kind of just like moved the bra or whatever and went, what the hell is that? Like what sort of size are we talking? Just like a bump. Right. You know, it's weird because I just sort of had this sort of terrible sense in my um, – I sort of – I remember crying and then the next morning I rang my uncle who's a, um, who was like um, GP and I said, oh, I found a lump. And he said, you need to get into a GP today. And I went into the GP and she said, oh, look, and you just, you know, the tone of her voice. She was like... "You, If, if you cried when you found it, you must have like, known deep down, I think. And I cried, like, I knew something was bad. I just yeah. didn't, I mean, I didn't know anything about breast cancer, really. Mm. And then she said, look, there's actually several lumps. But then she said, we need to get an ultrasound. And at that point I was thinking, oh, shit, this isn't very good. But they rang, I can't remember, they rang a provider this is on a Saturday, and they said, "Oh, you're pretty young to, you know, you're, you're too young. We'll it's wait till funny. sort of early next week." It's funny how they do that. But eh? then also, I had a big mm. paper at cabinet, like a big civil defence emergency paper. So I was like, "Oh, I'll just come back on the Tuesday and get this stuff looked at." So how can how can you focus on doing a? I know. Look, it was. Actually Do you look a back crazy, now and go, "What an idiot!" It was a crazy time. It was actually a. Yeah, it was quite a very important civil defence paper, and but was, was that an, was that a, like a nice distraction? Maybe something to focus your mind no, on. It or? was kind of like I was I, I needed I, I felt I needed to be there, but it probably it would have been a day in it, right? And cut, so anyway, but I was not in a good headspace. Mm. I did what I need to do. I came back and um, I rang John's. 
Deputy Chief of Staff, Paula Oliver, and I said to her, hey, look, just to let you know, I'm just having some tests. Probably be nothing, you know. But then um, they did the ultrasound and then they sent me into another room and suddenly they were doing more stuff and um, they took a biopsy. And then basically I went to see a breast person and, yeah, they said you've got breast cancer and that's where I tried to resign. Um, so how do they how do they tell you that? Like, do you have a support person in the room with you? I or? took my sister. Yeah, my sister yeah. went to pretty much every major medical appointment and, and at that time. When you, when, you, when you get when you hear that news, do you um do you break down and cry then, or are you just numb or sort of like for me, it was like I was hovering over my own body, going, "This isn't this isn't fucking happening. Like, this is not fucking happening, and this is not me, and this is not you know." And then uh, so sort of, but then I was. Um, incredibly upset and so I tried to uh, I rang Paula and um, she said we'll, we'll have to get the PM by himself because it'll knock him over a bit so we'll, we'll get him when he's out of some of the stuff anyway he rang a bit earlier and I said look I offer my resignation um, from cabinet you get me have my resignation from cabinet and he just said you're not fucking going anywhere Oh, that's, that must have made you feel so good. Why, why did you want to resign? Did you just think, I need to focus on... Well, I thought it was the right thing to do. Right, because you didn't know how long it would take or... Well, I just couldn't imagine how I could... I didn't... I just couldn't imagine that he would end up... He took the portfolios but kept me as a minister and I just... You, you just think it's the right thing to do. People need running the country. It's such an important job. But I think it... it, it people don't sort of realise now that sort of... Seemed more common practice, but at the time, I think he was, yeah, it was really... It was sort of groundbreaking at the time, do you think? Felt, in a way? Sort of, um, but obviously that practice has, I think, continued with other ministers now. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's like it, my world just kind of broke, smashed. It has been the most horrific thing in my life, but it has been the most beautiful How's it the most beautiful? Well, because I'm closer to a range of people that I wouldn't have been close to. Because basically, what happens when you get life-threatening illnesses? They, they yeah. well, they tell you that they love you, and they, um, and you often feel. I've talked about this with a lot of women who've been have been diagnosed, or people who've had cancer or have cancer. You know, why does it take this sort of worst period to feel the most love? And my stepfather actually. You know, of a medical event lately and we were in Middlemore in Auckland Hospital again I was sort of sitting there watching and you see you see so much trauma mm. but then you also see incredible love like it's it's so crazy that that's what it takes in life sometimes mm. yeah that's cool I suppose it's like a almost a eulogy in a way but you get to you get to experience it and you make it through the other end yeah um, so what's um so what so what happens so you, you get diagnosed and you, you get told you got cancer. Then what's the what's the treatment like? Um, so you know a range of treatment, including um, double mastectomy. Oh, that's um, yeah, the same thing Angelina Jolie had. Uh, but I didn't have the BRCA. What? Um, the what? The BRCA mutation, which is a mutation. But I had yeah both off. Which is that, is that a big call or not? Not at all. Um, is the right thing to do. Yeah. But it, in terms of. For a variety of reasons, it was, I was in surgery for a long time. That coming out, coming out of that, like it's quite physically and emotionally, 
Yeah, it's. I remember feeling like I had been. I woke up in the recovery room and I felt like I had been run over. Like that's how tired. Like if if you had major surgery. Well, from from like how do you mean like like coming out from from the drugs or just from the uh, well I the, think from the, the surgery surgical process yeah just this feeling when your body when you go through such physical trauma like that that your body is just completely spent yeah there's no I can't imagine I hope I never feel that way but I've never felt like my body was such a weight but also just before you kind of go in thinking. Like, am I going to wake up? Like, that's the... Did you, did you really think that? Well, it, even though that may have been irrational, mm. I still went through that process. And I think there's a lot of people... It's a pretty natural thing. Like, if you're going under for any major, to kind of just go... Mm. Um, you're only, you're only young, though. You think that's... I mean, if it's your 90-year-old granddad, maybe. But, you, you know, you were yeah, in your 30s. I mean, yeah. I think for... A lot of people for major procedures would go through that process, but also my stuff's been a bit more intense. And so I feel very, I choose to be very grateful. Other, sometimes people can get pretty angry, which is perfectly natural for periods, like why me, why did this have to happen? And, yeah, I kind of more think, well, why not me? So it's sort of... I don't know. It's it's, but the, and I guess that thing about resilience, like there's the yeah. reality is, I when you go through a lot of trauma like that, there is an amount for which every day is a good day. From episode thirty nine, Sir John Kerwin, a mate of mine, took his. He, he was bipolar, and no one, no one knew. No one, only his wife knew, and some very close people. But I, I consider myself a pretty good friend, and I had no idea. And he took his life in a very dramatic way, like by getting in front of a train. And um, I thought at that point. Should if, if Daryl's capable of having that weak moment where he makes a, such a permanent decision to such a temporary problem, then we could all have that moment. And that was alarming for me. Yeah, I mean, I never planned my own suicide for that. I was felt very, very grateful. But I'd had suicidal ruminations, yeah. which was so damn scary that, you know, I used to end up shaking in bed. You mentioned before something about um, wanting to jump out of a window. What was yeah, that? Yeah, that was, that was on the... Um, on an all-black tour, actually, and I'd been hiding my mental health and my anxiety, and my anxiety fell into a depression because they're two different illnesses, and I had no understanding of either of them. Um, you know, you're probably old enough to remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Yeah, the Jack Nicholson movie, yeah, fantastic so, movie. But, but that was my reference, man. right? That was my reference to mental health. Um, so I thought that if I don't, uh, if I, you know. If I talk to someone, I'm going to get locked up. I'm going to get locked up with Jack Nicholson and Chief, the big American Indian guy. <laughs> and Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, and I can laugh about it. I can laugh about it now, which is which is a healthy place to be. But the reality was um, I just did not understand what was going on in my head. And the three things I talk about with mental health that is part of the illness, and I say to people, it's an illness, not a weakness, right? And um, what happened with me was... I was ignoring the signs. I didn't know what it was. And this illness takes away your self-esteem, your self-confidence, and your enjoyment in life. And life's pretty shitty without those three things, mm. right? And that's where I was living. Um, and I had these suicidal ruminations, which used to scare me. And one night, I was in a hotel room in, in uh, Buenos Aires, the Hilton, on the 10th floor. The window was open, and I thought, I'm sick of fighting this shit. I was going to run and jump out. The guy lying next to me said, JK, you've got a good heart. Saved my life. His name was Michael Jones. 
Sir Michael Jones. Yeah, Iceman. Mm, the Iceman. Um, and and you Has, know, have you have you've obviously spoken to him in the years since? Did he have you asked him why or yeah, why he said a, those words at that moment? Yeah, I mean, um, Shit, I've got goosebumps, man. Just yeah, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about Ice is a beautiful man. I saw him yesterday, actually. Um, you know, he said, "Well, God must have told me, J.K." I thought, "Shit, I'd if God knows who I am, I'm all good." You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know and and. He, he, he is, you know, I, I think when you, when you talk about this world and you would have met people who have an amazing EQ and other people have an amazing IQ and some have great IQ and no EQ, um, but he had amazing EQ, so I'm pretty sure he would have sensed it and, and he would have felt it and, and, um, and the timing of it was impeccable. Mm. So, 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 okay, so, so you're, lying, you're lying there on, on your bed next to, next to your teammate and you're having these thoughts about doing – Something as final as that, and then he says those words that change your mind. What happens then? Do you like? Do you do you break down and like can spill your guts? No, to no, him shit, no, hide no. it. No, totally hide it. Um, just got me through that moment. Carried on. Like he would have said it for no reason. I wouldn't have reacted to it, but I didn't jump out the window. But he didn't know any of that was going on. I played a test match for New Zealand the next day. Scored two tries. Irrelevant. It's like watching myself from the stand, like an out of body experience, which sounds a bit freaky, but. Uh, wasn't quite that, but it was just like running just on nothing. Um, but I think it was so frightening that it made me reach out to get help. From episode 40, Garth Barfoot, 86-year-old marathon runner and Ironman triathlete. Absolute legend. Do you think um, London will be your last full marathon? On dull days, <laughs> I think it will be. Double days. But, but, how, uh, how often, how often the temptation, you... of course, is, is, as I said, you never know when you're on top. So, oh, gee, fancy being the oldest person. And, you know, they've probably had half a million people do it, uh, to do it. And it's, uh, so it's tempted to keep on. Mm. But, uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I've, I've entered the uh, off-road marathon at Motatapu, Queenstown. Oh, Aerotown, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aerotown, yeah, Aerotown, right. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, over Shania Twain, or it was Shania Twain's yeah, land. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what, are, what are you doing there? What distance? Oh, the full. <laughs> You're not expecting full. me to do anything but the full distance. Well, I, 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 <laughs> I'm not I, a wimp. I, I, <laughs> Whatever else I might be, I'm not a wimp. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. not a wimp. It's, um, it's, it's beautiful and it's scenic, but it's horrible. It's so steep. It's a, it's real challenging. That's amazing. But, I reckon if they can get a golf cart over it, yeah. that's where the first aid people. I, I should be able to do it, but uh, I'm still trying to get my friends to come with me. But yeah. they, they all say, "Oh, I couldn't do that distance, guys." Yeah. When you say trying to get your friends to come with you, what age are they? Younger than you? Uh, same well, age? Well, what I call the younger people, but of course they're in their seventies. Right. Pushing yourself physically, it's been such a big part of your life since since your fifties. Uh, you know, like Ironman marathons things like that do you think as you as you get older and even into your 90s um you'll keep pushing yourself but the distance will get smaller like say half marathons or 10 kilometers well it's going to be a uh a dilemma really you know the, the marathons is the one that gets publicity the, the, the glamour and the half is you know i used to think i was beneath my dignity to do these park runs <laughs> uh, oh, i would never want to do those and not you know they they're not orientated towards competitive people, but I do the park run now. I do it at the Sherwood, Sherwood Park up at Browns Bay, and I got into that because someone had tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Oh, Garth, do you know Ironman Buffett and Thompson? Who would I contact to get some sponsorship?" 
And I said, well, I've been retired four years. Um, and then I said, well, why don't you ask me? You know, I'm on the rich list. <laughs> <laughs> and they only wanted, well, to me, they only wanted, in my language, a, a defibrillator. Defibrillator. Yeah, what are they worth? Yeah, well, no, I didn't know what they were worth. Mm. But I sort of thought, well, if anyone's going to need a defibrillator, it'll be me. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like insurance. <laughs> so it wasn't rock and insurance. I couldn't say yes fast enough. Yeah. Because um, they had to get that to get the the uh, okay to run the race. Mm. They did have an incident. Oh, one, one incident, and it's paid for itself already, hasn't That's it? That's right, yeah. Did you say you're on the rich list? Yeah. yeah. Are you? Is that the like Forbes or NBR or uh, NBR, National yeah, Business yeah, Review? Yeah, yeah. So I, I always wondered about that. Like, do do they get the figures right? Like, do you read it and go, "I'm I'm worth way more than that," or that's a bullshit figure? Well, it's it's, it's always a bit hard anyway. Even you know, I've got the what is it, the high net worth people from the Indian Revenue they are doing this survey. <laughs> and it's, I don't sort of carry those things in my head, or mm. it's a bit hard to know. But it certainly enabled me, I, you know, I've sponsored, I mean, the company sponsors a lot of things. What, what did NBR think you were worth? We used to look at it to find out. <laughs> what was it, like a like hundred million, fifty million? Uh, well, of course, it's Barford and Thompson, right. see, so I'm sure it'd be a hundred million or less families. Mm. But you, you're, not, you're not a flashy guy at all. Like you've lived in the same house your entire life. Yeah. What sort of car do you drive? Oh, I drive a Lexus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nice, but no, it's not. You're not getting around in a McLaren or a Ferrari. No, no, or, no. So when when you go to London, no, please tell me you'll be flying business or first class, though. Oh well, um, yeah. But what happened was uh, I'm going with a group, and you probably gathered I'm a sort of sociable guy, and uh, I, I sort of if I travel. What was it? I think it's premium economy. I'll have more chance of meeting my friends. <laughs> so, you know. you're in premium economy. I mean, we went on a luxury cruise, you know, because you think, oh, that's life. But honestly, by the time of three weeks, I was looking forward to it to end. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Why? Why? Why were you just bored? Or oh, well, I wanted to get back to my running, and and I used to walk or around the swimming pool on the ship. But, of course, the swimming pool aren't very good. <laughs> and I started to get dizzy, so I just reversed the... <laughs> so, and it's part of the hard to work. Once the seas get rougher, <laughs> I get seasick quite easily. So. Mm. From episode 41, Mickey Willardin, nutritionist and runner. Everyone's different as to the amount of, you know, things that they can include and continue to be healthy. Yeah. And that's what I always strive for with my clients. Like, it's not... Um, maximum deprivation. It's about, it's almost minimum effective dose. What can you get away with? Mm. But when people get fundamentals right, they figure out or we figure out together that they can probably get away with a lot more than what they think if they do some key things right. My big thing would be like, say someone comes to you and they want to lose weight, which basically means in brackets, a diet. How does someone lose weight fast before then going onto like a healthy, sustainable yeah, lifelong plan. Great question, Dom. Is it? So, yeah. yeah. So, fast weight loss is often looked on as being detrimental for a host of reasons. But actually, if you look at research around it, it can be as effective and might e- almost be more sustainable than a slow, steady drop because people get those quick wins and are quite motivated. I think it always has to be couched in education or a plan which allows you tools that show you how to eat in that sort of forever Mm -hmm. approach. That's how I sort of 
do it. So if someone comes to me for weight loss, it's figuring out whether they need or can sustain like a a quite a big overhaul for a short period of time, or whether or not they do need to make small changes. So a, a big overhaul for a period of time. What would that? How drastic is it? Yeah, usually it will be more protein and more vegetables, less carbs, and for some people it's eating more food. Because so okay, so so just like pluck an average day. Say what would breakfast, morning snack, lunch? Um, usually there would be no snacks. Unless, of course, you're an active person. Yeah. Then maybe you do need to eat four times a day, right? But you probably don't need to have your toast and jam before your run. You don't need to come back to scrambled eggs and toast and two milky coffees and then a muffin <laughs> and then sushi and then some protein bar and then, you know, continue. So it's usually going to look like a lot of the meals I suggest to people are very similar depending on what they like. It might be two eggs and a protein shake. And the protein shake might have some vegetables included. It doesn't have a lot of fruit in there. You Why? Want... Because of the sugar? Yeah. I say that, but it does depend. Like if you've gone out for a run, then yes, absolutely have carbohydrate in your meal when you come back because that'll help your muscles replenish, right? But if you haven't, then actually that sugar in fruit or cereal or toast, when I say sugar, I mean sort of more a carbohydrate that is broken down into sugar. That'll just spike your blood glucose and that will then subsequently lead to a crash later on in the morning. So your 10 a.m. snack is sort of governed a little bit by the fact that your blood sugars have crashed and not necessarily that you need calories. So we always sort of start with good protein and um, a bit of fat and fiber, like vegetable fiber usually. And I have like breakfast bakes that I suggest people make. I have like protein smoothie bowls because I, I love uh, the convenience of protein powder and a shake type thing. Yeah. But texture is, is really important. So you chew something. So your brain gets that signal that you've eaten something. So I like to have like a smoothie bowl that has a bunch of other sort of like might have zucchini if they're not $18 a kilo or it might have carrot or pumpkin or something like that in it, or cauliflower. Oh, that sounds disgusting. You, have you tried it, Dom? <laughs> no, no, I haven't, I, oh, I haven't tried mate. it. You should. I should challenge you to a week of Mickey eating. Yeah, all right. I'd, yeah. I'd give it a go, yeah. Okay, awesome. There is that saying, don't knock it till you try it. Yeah, that's it's 100% true. And, in fact, when I sort of talk people through the, the, the type of dietary approach, the response is not too dissimilar to yours. Mm. But all it takes is to try it to see how different you can feel. So then lunch would be, um, it, it's nothing, it's not rocket science. I'm sure you could probably tell me what lunch is, like salad, protein, maybe a piece of fruit, maybe not. When you say protein, what do you mean? You'd want either uh, chicken or beef or pork or lamb or eggs, and you'd want a good sort of 150 grams cooked right. of those particular foods or three eggs. It's because of the protein quantity and quality that you get in those foods. So, but you know, 130 grams of chicken is about 40 grams of protein. Okay. And as we age, Dom, our brain, like we start to need more protein at each meal to get the signal that we've got enough of those amino acids on board to help stimulate muscle protein synthesis okay. and to produce neurotransmitters and right. a whole host of things. So protein and vegetables would be my sort of lunch go-to. And most people would, would probably um, understand why that is. And then um, dinner wouldn't be too different, to be honest. Uh, I generally advocate a lower carb approach for most people mm-hmm. because that's because most people default back to carbs because they're really convenient. So it takes work to do things differently. 
but also, you know, you have to recognise that it's what you do typically that makes a difference. It's, yeah, what you do most of the time. Of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. when you know, so yeah, I have chips and I drink beer and I enjoy chocolate and things like that. But you know, eighty percent of the time, I'm eating the way that I've sort of just mm-hmm. described to you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's good. So you do a drastic diet like that for a while, and then you can resume a slightly more normal one. Well, okay. So and that's what's got to change as well. So it's the mindset because you've just said that that's a drastic diet. <laughs> and actually, no, Dom, that's not a drastic diet. I feel like I'm being told off right now. <laughs> I know, that's that, that's that like 10 years of being a lecturer. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, that's <laughs> but, deserved. But, but, you, but you, you, you get that the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so all the while, so it's more than just the diet, and this is what I do with the clients, is actually it's a mindset shift, and you've got to think about why you're doing it. From episode 42, Zoe McBride, the rower who turned her back on her Olympic dream to prioritise her mental health. Yeah, that was a conversation that I dreaded. And I, like the last month, I guess, like when I was actually pretty seriously trying to make the decision, it was just so much guilt of what would happen if I decided that I couldn't go. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So when do you make the make your own mind up that you're not going to the Olympics? And then how far after that do you do you tell Jackie? Yeah, so we had nationals in Feb 21, so last year. And, like, I loved nationals. It was so great. I feel like I definitely wasn't at my fittest, but I knew that I was, like, pretty close to, like, being there. So I was like, I can do it. I can make it. Um, But then after that, I guess, was when I had to start losing weight. I wasn't near race weight. Like, I was – I probably had, like, six and a half kgs to lose. And so I started – trying to lose weight after nationals and like over that summer it just wasn't really going anywhere and then I guess I started like dieting a little bit and that's when I was like hold up like I can't do this and I'd like I'd promised myself that I wasn't going to do that and I just I didn't want to do that again like from that year when it was almost yeah the year that I'd been in like my lowest point and I was like I don't I can't put myself back into that place purposefully for like a game you know like it was it was it's a sport it's like um, not worth sacrificing my body. So that was March-ish that I made. I talked to my psychologist heaps and then I talked to my doctor and I was like, just have to make the decision. Like I'm the worst decision maker in the world. So it took me so long to get to it. But yeah, after nationals, I was like, there's no other option. And I either make it now or I keep dragging it out. And then I'm kind of impacting other people even more. I suppose it would have been an easy, easy decision to make if it was just you. Yeah. Um, yep. Was that what made it an extra hard decision? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, it was the partnership, it was everything, and it mm. was like the partnership that we'd built together. And yeah, so it's like, it's not just thinking about yourself. And if it was just about myself, it would be easier. And there was like part of me that was like, maybe I'll just get injured and then I can't go. Like, then the, decision, the fact that the decision was in my hands was the hardest bit. Mm. Um, yeah. But once I made the decision, or once I got. Once I kind of tipped over the like the fifty fifty point, I was like, I know I've just got to have these conversations. As sucky as they're gonna be. Oh my god, I'm such a gutless piece of shit. <laughs> I'd um, yeah, I, I'd ghost. I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Zoe? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> New number. Who does? Okay, so so, so when is it like March, April, March, April? Yeah, it was like yeah. of last year. Yeah. And so, so the games are in August. Yeah. So it's like four months away. Yeah. Your partner, yeah. Jackie. So yeah. how, how does how does this happen? You go around and see her at home. You finish um, training. No, so we had. Text, then turn no. your phone on flight mode. <laughs> I talked to my coach, and he said 
yeah, I talked to my coach first and then he was like, okay, I'll organize the conversation. It's quite funny. He's like, I'll, I'll take you guys to the velodrome because then we're in like a neutral place. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to see us or hear us like <laughs> things get out of hand or we're leaving separately. <laughs> yeah. So we, yeah, we were at the velodrome and like, I'm pretty sure I was crying before I even went in there. I don't think I could even like talk to any of them like before while we were going in. Um, Jackie must have known, eh? Yeah, and I think, like, yeah, she knew that I was struggling. We talked, like, a little bit about it. But I think my, yeah, like, my coach had talked to her a little bit as well and kind of been like, you know, if this is going to happen, like, what, you know? Like, he kind of warmed it up a little bit. Obviously, it was, yeah, obviously, like, even though he'd had those conversations, like, I don't think... She thought like that was what was going to happen. Like, I mean, it's like anything. You always want to stay positive and say like, yes, that's an option, but you know, we can do this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, You got this. It's only four more months. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was undoubtedly like the hardest conversation. And like up to that point, I hated having hard conversations. <laughs> <laughs> I loved. Well, at least you know now. Like, every difficult conversation you have in life is not going to be as difficult as yeah, that. That's so, yeah, that's shitting on someone else's <laughs> Olympic dream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, basically. And, um, and, so, and how, how does she take it? Is she, is she, does she go through the, the stages of grief? Like, is she ang- yeah. angry at all? Or yeah, like yeah. yeah, there was, and like I, I didn't blame her. Like I, I completely accepted it because I was like, I would go through the exact same process. Like there's a, there's a whole lot of things coming up here and emotions, and like it wasn't my place to justify them or to try and make her feel better. It was just like to be there. And talk about it and respect what she needed from me. So it was, yeah, it was it was very emotional, like for mm, everyone. Yeah. Um, no one likes to have those conversations. I didn't like to have the conversation, but like we <laughs> needed to be, we needed, like the conversation, like we went in there, we're like, just everything's on the table. You know, like whatever you want to talk about, this is where we talk about it. And I think that was really good for both of us because... You know, like mm. if she wanted to get angry, like, or she wanted to say things like, or if I wanted to say things like that was the place to do it yeah. so that we could kind of process them, those emotions. Was there just absolutely no plan B? Like, is in not, not someone else they could have chucked in the boat for four months? And Yeah, see, this was, this was like a bit of the issue. Um, like there wasn't any lightweights that had been kept around in Royal New Zealand or developed. Like right. there was different, there was lightweights around, but there was a gap, a huge gap between like them and us. Like we had been the only lightweights in, in the summer squad in the Royal New Zealand program for those couple of years. So they weren't training the same as us or mm. anything. And so that was a lot of pressure on the both of us. Like that it was us or nothing kind of thing. Like yeah. there's no second person. I think, yeah, there was someone that jumped in for like a few weeks to see if they could kind of take the place but they made they made the decision that the boat just wasn't kind of yeah gonna make it in time and that it was kind of better just to leave it and then Jackie unfortunately didn't happen because of COVID but she was going to go and race a single and set at the world champs mm-hmm. um so that she could have her race there but yeah obviously that didn't happen in the end how's the relationship now uh, she she put a really nice post up on instagram at the time yeah and like she she was amazing like she was yeah, really supportive yeah. like you go through your emotions but at the end of the day and like she reiterated it in that room like she was like i support you no matter what and like i would never want you to sacrifice yourself like that mm. and it was like there's the grief of losing her dream but you don't want to put someone else's 
life and health on the line or at risk because of your own dream as well. Like there's, I think sometimes when you are in sport, like when you're younger, you don't realize this, but there's so much outside of sport that's actually really important as well. Um, And it's about realizing that sometimes that needs to take priority. From episode 43, Joseph Sullivan, Olympic gold medalist and two-time America's Cup winner. I was seeing the psychologist and I was getting the help I needed and was trying to stay positive, but I just couldn't see like the out. And I was having big weekends on the piss with friends and I was kind of enjoying that side of life, but still was just lost and, and not following a direction. And it wasn't actually until we kind of did this event with the Halberg's Disability and Sport Foundation and we did this trip racing some Australians around New Zealand doing different tasks like rowing and cycling and and running and things like that. The team that was actually supporting us was the Green Watch Fire crew from Hamilton. And they were driving us around in the, the vans while we did these events and like that was all good and went back to my normal life of just being in despair for a bit. And then <laughs> one day they they gave me a call and was like, Oh, we were pretty keen to meet up for a coffee and I met up with two of the guys <clears throat> from this crew and they said, We think you should join the fire service. Had you, thought, had you ever thought I about that, entertained the idea? I never even thought about the fire service, probably since I was a five-year-old kid. Like, I remember going to the fire station when I was a kid and how amazing was that? You get to go on the truck and try on the gear and it was really get, cool. Get and the disappointment when you realise most stations <laughs> yeah. don't actually have a pole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I never thought about being a fireman ever again. And then these two guys literally said, we think you'd be good for the fire service if you thought about trying. So I went and did a, lot, a ride along with them in Hamilton and, and just kind of found a sense of purpose and I really enjoyed kind of the camaraderie and, and what was happening in that kind of group and there was an intake coming up so I applied and went through all the testing and did all the, the cognitive and the physical testing. And Oh, you'd fly through that, wouldn't you? Well, I thought I did. <laughs> I, kind of, I went through it all and then I got to the interview phase and I had my first formal interview and I'd never... Like, I'd been a sports person my whole life. I'd never had to sit down with someone in, in power, plead my case why I thought I was going to be a good firefighter and, and that kind of stuff. And I remember getting asked these questions and they're like, have you ever had to deal with this and that? And I, I explained what I'd dealt with and I remember dropping a few F-bombs, got out of the interview and, and the guy that I'd talked to, he rang me up and was like, how was your interview? And I think I, I think it went good. And he, he rang up the guy who interviewed me and he's like, he dropped I would have thought a, the fire service would be quite a sweary yeah, environment. Apparently not in a formal, formal oh, okay. interview. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he rang me back and he's like, oh, it's, it's, it's not looking good. You, you maybe sworn a bit too much. And I was like, ah, shit. So I remember they kind of told us we'd hear about if we got in or not in the next 10 days. And I waited those 10 days and got no phone call. So... Literally planned a weekend with the boys in Wai and Fidianga, sorry, and was heading on the piss. And um, that was maybe 15 days after the interview. Mm. And I was like, oh, surely I haven't made it. They would have let me know by now. And I was heading to Fidianga and got the phone call to tell me I was in. And that kind of just gave me a, a, a revive to like my a, life. and Like a purpose or direction. Yeah, all of a sudden I, I knew what I was about to do and, yeah. and where I was going to head, so. Yeah, it was, I suppose something to look forward to, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, yeah. definitely. And yeah, it was just having purpose. And I think when you're in, in that, that phase of depression, just finding that, that thing that makes you get up or makes you move or, or makes you 
get outside of the house or out of your comfort zone is, is really important. I know it's literally the hardest thing in the world to find, but mm. just like you said, with the running, it's just putting one foot in front of the other just again. keep moving forward. Just yeah. to keep, yeah. keep moving and keep getting some traction. From episode 44, Nick Ashill. Wellington dude who completed an epic run right across America against all odds. It's a hell of a story. Heading towards um, Columbus, dual carriageway, always run into the traffic for, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Yes. Nothing on the road at that time of the morning, 10 past, quarter past eight. Uh, I was on a hands-free Skype call with Sarah and the girls who were on holiday. And dark-coloured pickup truck on the outer lane of the dual carriageway. Just one, one vehicle on the road, nothing else. Didn't think anything of it at all. And then the truck moved from the outer lane to the uh, to the inner lane. Didn't think anything of that either. And then with 50, 60 uh, metres out, um, increased speed, uh, came onto the hard shoulder where I was. And I, for a split second, I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hit. And I attempted to drum, jump a small small metal railing um on the side of the of the road and got my I remember getting my left foot up uh, but I wasn't quick enough and I got slammed on my right side at 100k an hour tossed in in the air I remember that bit and landing on my back in a ditch that wasn't visible from the road which was a bit problematic because any cars going high didn't actually see me. So, so, so you said you were on a on a, on a, a Skype phone call at the time. So where, where was your phone? Did you manage yeah, it was to hang? In, it was um, the phone was in my running pack. Right. And um, the good thing, well, positive thing about this, even though the, the phone was thrown from my pack, it was still working. So right. um, the, the, the the real horrible thing is that Sarah and and Bella and Abby uh, heard my screams. Um, but the positive is that I was st- still able to have a, a you know a, a conversation with um, you know with Sarah. Uh, she oh, so, the, oh, so the, the call did not disconnect. No, 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 no. So she was able to alert uh, official state troopers um, and my support crew, and then there was a process of trying to find me. So you, so, so you were you were communicative through the, through the whole thing. You, you, you um, must have been so, in excruciating pain. Well, or do you think adrenaline kicked in on you? Well, that, that's interesting. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't feel anything. I, I know it's a maybe the, you know, the shock through through the body. Mm. Uh, I remember looking down, and and obviously the um, uh, you know, my leg had, had snapped, and I could see uh, you know open open bones uh, with a, with the um, open tip of fracture. Um, but I didn't feel anything. Um, but I had no idea of the, what was going on with with my pelvis that had had, uh, had been crushed and. and it rotated, so it had done essentially. I know you can't see this, but it had done this. Uh, but I had no idea about that. You must have just been in shock, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I remember looking down and, and thinking, and <laughs> I mean, joking because that's part, just part of who I am. Joking, <laughs> thinking, shit, my run's over. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It really was. Yeah, you've got absolutely no doubt in your mind. Not one ounce of doubt that this was deliberate like the, the driver swerved no, no 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 question what a piece from, of from, shit from, from me um i mean the driver didn't stop but something that you learn about in hospital and subsequent investigation by by authorities there that part of rural ohio has has one of the highest um, opiate rates in the u.s there may have been alcohol involved 
and the combination of drugs. I mean, I'm assuming that the the individual knew what they were doing. Mm. I don't know that. They yeah. might have no recollection of it whatsoever. Mm. But what I do know is that 100% certain with regard to the pickup truck on the outer lane at the very beginning, there wasn't any deviation or erratic driving. Mm. So I'm making the assumption that he yeah. or she knew. Unbelievable. So, okay, so so Sarah um, gets on the phone, let, lets your support crew know and lets state, state troopers know. Then, yeah. um, Did she know exactly where you were or were you able to give no, her? No, um, it was just through questioning. So uh, it was just through uh, through a series of questions. And, and the critical question was, had I passed the local um, airfield? And the answer is no. So they were able to determine roughly the area that, that I was uh, that I was in. How how you did how you remained conscious and uh, able to communicate is uh, something of a miracle, I guess. Like, luckily, well, there was no head injury involved, I guess. Yeah, I did have a concussion, but fortunately, that was that was right. that was really minor. That, I mean, that's a good point. If I'd been hit head on. And okay, so um, so you're there, you're there for fifty minutes. Are you are you on the phone to Sarah the entire time? Yeah, until until the. Um, Phone died. Um, that was uh, after that. That was that was that was shit. Because um, I, I, it was a, a really dark, a really dark time, and I remember all I wanted to do was was sleep. Um, was that the concussion? I think it was the it was the whole trauma yeah, and shock okay. really kicking in with with the, with the body. Um, and I made that decision. I, I remember I made that decision. I'm going to sleep. Uh, but then I heard voices. And it was uh, medic first aid responders, state troopers, and uh, apparently a helicopter. You never felt like it was a matter of life and death. Well, you did at the time. Like, were you, were you were you sitting there thinking, "Fuck, I may not make it out of this alive." Um, there, there, there was a moment when the phone died that I made the decision: I have to do something myself because nobody's coming. I mean, I didn't know that people were looking but for what, me. What but, could you do? Though? Well, I tried to crawl out. Uh, I was on my, um, I was on my back uh, on a slope in a ditch, and I and I tried to crawl out, but I, uh, I I couldn't, and I couldn't work out why. But obviously, I know now is because of the state of my pelvis. Yeah. <sighs> so you're just unable to move. I was unable to move. When you heard those um, sirens or those voices, that must have been oh, one of the happiest moments of your life. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Pretty special, um, and then airlifted to, um, by helicopter. The road had been closed at that point to a um, to Ohio State University Hospital, right. which became home. And then straight straight on the opiates, like everyone else in that town. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm glad I got off them quickly, though. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, do you remember much about those first couple of days in the hospital? No, I, I if I go back to the helicopter ride, I just remember just flashing lights, um, and the doctors and nurses when I arrived at the hospital told me that my language was really, really colourful, colourful. <laughs> um, and it wasn't directed at them; it was directed uh, at the you know the person who hit me. Um, yeah, oh, but, but well deserved. No, answer your question, no. Yeah, I, I, I just slept, and really for the next six weeks, I. Slept 18, 20-hour days. Mm. Was yeah. it just the drugs or just your body trying to heal itself? I think a com- combination, yeah. of, uh, combination of both. Yeah. And then, so how long are you in hospital there for? In, uh, in Wexner, um, the brain and spine unit for two months. And then I had a third month in a rehabilitation hospital, which was attached to, to OSU. 
and then after that, about another month, um, outpatient, um, and then had final permission, medical permission to fly. Um, but I had to be accompanied by a, by a nurse and flew back to the UAE where more surgery to address internal injuries. Right. Um, so it wasn't just pelvis and broken bones. There were a whole heap of other stuff. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. From episode 45, Jesse Chook, Celebrity Treasure Island winner 2022. Inga the Winger, he was he was supposed to be on the show. Yeah, uh, didn't end up on the show. But so so, what happened there? Yeah, it was um, it was pretty. Um, you know, Inga had made the journey north to, to film the show with us, and and had um had to leave prior prior to filming, and and unfortunately um, passed away ahead of um. Why, why did he have to show. leave prior to filming? Was it was he unwell? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he started getting unwell, and um, and yeah. Had had left where where we were back back to back to Auckland and and yeah we kind of learned of it um, just before we, we headed into the show so that was um, incredibly incredibly hard to process in that situation um, just such an incredible guy like I I yeah, met was that him, your first time meeting him? Yeah, yeah first time meeting yeah. him and I met him for a week and um, had some you know had some awesome times with him and listened to his stories and. Um, making jokes, and he just—he's just a very kind and, and nice, nice human. Did he, did he seem unwell or anything? No, oh. no, he was happy. He was in—he was in great spirits. He was excited for the show, and um, it's just one of those—you know—one of those things that no one, no one knew. And um, yeah, it made a massive impact on on the show, and I think how the show played out as well. Um, having that tragedy before it, I think it made us really, really close. I reckon it explains probably some of the the sacrifices that that went on and just how emotional everyone was um, in the show. I think you know you have a tragedy like that; it brings people together. It doesn't matter how long you've known a person; it's a pretty heavy thing. So oh, yeah. it really is, and not to mention kind of bizarre that you know you guys were some of the last people to see him alive, yeah, happy and well, yeah, yeah. And it is um, it is a hard one to process. You know, we did the did a fundraising event for. Thing his family a uh, uh, um, couple of weeks ago, and um, uh, sorry, um, and his wife said that where we did the bowling was the was the last place that his family had gone um, together before they before he went north, um, and we didn't know that, um, and yeah, it was really hard that that at that moment it kind of dawned on me that. That we were that you know the last people yeah, yeah. Um, to see him, 
but to have that to have that moment with within his family to um to celebrate his life and it was a massive celebration um you know sharing stories and, and bowling finger um was was really special yeah that was a really cool thing to do that was um an initiative done by ron crib uh, former all black who was on the show with you and uh, yourself and your bowled uh, for 12 hours uh for two consecutive days yeah my fingers are actually still sore, <laughs> sore from doing it it's um they're like some serious yeah. bone bruising but no like it was a nice thing whose idea was it was that ron's idea or your yeah like we, we like ron and i ron and i are super close um now since the show and um yeah, we kind of just um, thought we'd like to do something. We'd always planned to do something. We're like, let's do, let's do some bowling. It's nice, intimate. We can get, you know, rain or shine. We can, we can do it. And um, you know, since the show and talking about anger with Ron, the one thing I started to learn was just that you know, he was a very kind person his whole life. He put others first his whole life, and yeah. and did everything for us. And anyone you talk to, Inga the Winger had this massive smile. Just Always. so lovely, and as devastating as he was on the field as as a winger, he was just the most gentle giant off it. Yeah. Um. So it was a no brainer. Ron just said, if if the situation was any different, this is what Inga would be doing mm. for someone else. So yeah, it really just made sense for us to do that. From episode forty six, Hamish Kerr, New Zealand's best ever high jumper and Commonwealth Games gold medalist. Generally, how's your mental health been? Like, obviously, there's the um, anxiety and stress that comes with um, high-pressure sport, and we've talked about this before, like just the stressing out about no jumping, but um, outside of that, mostly good? Yeah, mostly good. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that um, I'm very lucky. I've always had people around me who have really, like, supported me to just be open, Um, and I think that that's something that is really, really powerful. Um, I always think that, you know, it's – you're not weak to speak out. You're actually really mm. strong. That's that's something that is very admirable and something that that I would you know I encourage all my mates to you know have those chats and mm. and because you make it makes you feel so be- so much better if there's something sort of nagging on your mind and oh one hundred percent it's just like you know if you can if you can actually just chat someone and I think for me like my experiences with with you know feeling down and all the rest of it you always just feel so lonely mm. um, and then once you actually chat to someone about it you realize that. There are there are other people who who could be going through similar things, and mm. if you can go through those things together, then that actually makes a makes a massive difference. So yeah, where, where did that come from from you? Is that just the way you were raised with your parents to be like just open and not afraid to show some vulnerability? Yeah, I think so. Like um, like I've always <laughs> known from a very young age that like my mum, you know, my mum has had depression pretty much her whole life, and yeah, that was just something that was really normalised for us. Like. Mm. You know, she she was just like, look, like you know, this is this is how it is. Like, I mean, where our my family has got, uh, you know, a history of mental health, and 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 that's something that I don't think we really let define ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. We just kind of we kind of deal with it and just and just you know have a have an amazing support team around us to to kind of work through that. So yeah, I think I think that's the thing. Like, I know that you know. It's it's not if those days happen, it's when those days happen. Yeah. Um, I know that there's people I can pick up the phone and chat to, which which just makes a massive difference. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, um, yeah. How, how bad is it for your mum? Like, does she have periods where she just doesn't want to get out of the bed? No, no, it's not. Like, yeah. and does that's she thing, manage like, it quite well? It's probably like, I mean, like obviously, I I don't want to like you know speak for my mum or yeah, anything, but yeah. it's like one of those things that like she she deals she deals with it so well. Um, mm. you know, she's she's been getting help for a while and and. You know, she never really let it impact the way that she brought us up or anything. So I think that was something that 
you know, that, that was what I found really inspiring was that, you know, there was all the stuff happening in the background, which I didn't really know was happening um, until, you know, a few years later when, you know, now I, I talk to my mom about those stuff, that stuff a lot more and kind of realized like, you know, the extent to it. So it's, it's just super. Why did she just sort of shield it from you guys? Yeah. 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 Like she, she, she had her support network um, and, you know, we weren't at an age where, where we could probably be a part of that. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, she was focused on, on the good and the, the bringing us up with the, with, you know, the morals and the values that she wanted us to kind of portray in our lives. And, and then there became a time when, when that became more of a two way street. Mm. And yeah. So I think that's really cool is I know that, you know, they'll pick up the phone and talk to me and I'm, I'm doing the same. So yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. It's, it's good to have those conversations. So I'm, I'm, yeah. um, I'm older than you and um, it, you'd always just be as um, tough as what you could and as closed as what you could, yeah. especially going to a, a school like Palmerstoth Boys High School. Cause um, if you show any sort of vulnerability, it could be weaponized against you. Yeah. hundred percent. So no, I found just, that at school as well. Did like, you? It was like, I, I like know of people who like, had things happening in their lives which they just didn't tell anyone until mm. they left school like like there was one point where there was like a couple of people who it wasn't in my year it was a couple of years above me but like essentially they like left school and they came out as um as being homosexual right, like right. pretty much straight away and like and they pretty much said they were like we didn't feel comfortable doing that at school and it was like for me i was just like man like i understand where you're coming from like but I reckon that's just so sad, and and I think that that culture has changed a lot since since I left. But oh, probably seismically, I'd say, over, yeah. like over the last ten years. Yeah. But yeah, when I went to school, like um, yeah, this is like late eighties, early nineties. It was like everyone was called a homophobic slur every day. Yeah, everyone was a, a fucking fag or a fucking yeah. homo. Or whatever. Yeah, which is just like so. If you uh, and I, I look back now and I think, um, okay, the, you know, a thousand boys at the school. You'd assume maybe 100, 150, 200 of them were gay. Yeah. Imagine how awful that is. Yeah, and it's so sad. Like, a lot of those people probably have never come out. Because of that, the way I look at it is if there's anything that's, like, dragging me down um, and there's any of those sort of things nagging me at the back of my mind and I can't be at peace with all of those, then when the pressure comes on and those big, you know, those big jumps and those big moments, not just in athletics, but, you know, in anything in your life, like, they will be exposed and they will bring you down. Yeah. So you kind of have to know that, those rocks have been have been you know taken care of, and yeah. you you can't function as a human if if you're trying to carry around all this stuff. Which actually, there are people in your life who'll be happy to take it for a while. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That, that's one thing that I, str- I struggle with because I think um I get I get validation from uh, like within my family for being the being the fixer or being yeah. the go-to guy, yeah, being yeah, the yeah, solution yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I do find it hard to sit back and say, um, you know, I'm not doing great at the moment. Can yeah. You go? Which Can is you... which is dumb. It's completely dumb because no one's mm. no one's no one's ironclad, are they? No, absolutely not. Like I think the more we just talk about it, and the more we realise that everyone is just going through all the same stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty special. Oh man, that's one of the takeaways I've got from doing this podcast this year. Eh? Everyone is carrying around a bag of shit. It's just how, how big that bag of shit is. Absolutely, and like you know, that's the same with everyone on tour. I mean, mm. all the all the great athletes that I know, it's it's like it's almost like they're the ones who've been able to deal with it. It's not like they're the ones who don't have it. It's like everyone's got it. And what makes you a great athlete or a great person or a great human is is actually working on ways and how you can how you can like just live with that, yeah, and be okay with it. From episode forty seven, Liam Malone, New Zealand Paralympian legend.
No. Silver in the 100, gold so, in the 200 and the 400. I think that's when you, you first came to my radar because um, you blew up with your speech afterwards where you said, I'm just a kid from Nelson that r- runs around in circles and reads books. Mm. Is that the quote? Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah. what I was doing at the time. That was hilarious. Uh, you know, I don't really believe my own hype. Like, I'm just a goofy dude from Nelson who just runs in circles and reads books. You know, there's nothing really special to me at all. Oh, yeah, I just see my goofy face on that big TV, and I'm just like, oh, I look like such a schmuck. Well, as New New Zealand's new cyborg overlord, uh, I'm feeling pretty happy right now. I mean, well, <laughs> like, it's just... funny as hell. Right, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was 22 at the time, and it was <laughs> and just... Long, was, you're long hair. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's, yeah I, didn't, I didn't really want to have long hair. And, but you, you look like, a, like, a, like an anarchist athlete, you know what I mean? Well, part of it was... You look because, like a surfer. Yeah, but the part of it was because... When I went to the Paralympics, you do a training camp. So for people who don't really understand the Olympic cycle, you spend three years and you do kind of like national competitions. Maybe you go to Aussie, but then leading into an Olympic Games, you'll go and do a training camp overseas where you try to get a little bit better competition. You maybe compete against some of the people you compete against at the Olympics. I went to the United States to their Olympic training center to compete against guys that I'd be competing against in the Olympics. The Americans, as we know, don't necessarily have the wider scope of like uh, global views and so their view of New Zealand athletes was all blacks performing the haka and Stephen Adams this big giant right right who has long hair and a big beard and he's a savage so I went there and I wanted them to think that I was a savage and so I had (laughs) long hair and a beard while I was training and I would train in the middle of the day so that they thought I was nuts because the Olympic training centers on the border of Mexico you know it's just extraordinarily hot and I get to the Paralympics, I shave the beard, and then the Olympic Village is just a nightmare because it's in Brazil and it literally bankrupted the state of Rio. And, you know, there's just like the Paralympics is, of course, filled with diversity and the people that they employed. And you've got like barbers with like three fingers who are cutting hair. And I'm like, I'm not letting these people get me. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so that's that's kind of how the, the long hair came about. Oh, that was, it was really good. And, you, and your times, you, you got world records, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Beating Pistorius. Correct. And was it, he, he was sort of like a mentor? No, fuck no. No? No, didn't, didn't, you had some conversations with yeah, him? I mean, yeah, I mean, I talked to him in between when he was released from uh, his year serving for manslaughter. Right. I had been at the World Championships in Qatar and talked to one of his best friends. And then he just like reached out to me offering advice. And I was like... There's no fucking way that someone on trial for murder is offering a stranger on the internet advice. This guy's mad. Anyway, and then he went, then, so I I talked to him while he was on, just before he went back for being on trial for murder. Never to hear from him again. We were strangely like, he's one of the only people that I know who was born with the same disability. Mm. His mum died at the same age, thereabouts. And so very similar experiences growing up in terms of sports we played. Um, we had very different views on what the Paralympics should be. You know, he wanted to go to the able-bodied Olympics. I'm like, dude, you would never have made it to the able-bodied Olympics if you had real legs. There's no mm, way. Yeah. Just like his, the type of physique that he has, I have. It's, it wouldn't have been possible. So, yeah, haven't heard from him since, but I do want to fight him when he gets out of prison. So I'd love to do a, you know, corporate boxing match. Oh, like Oscar a fight for life. Yeah, against Oscar, because <laughs> that would be the only even fight that I could have, yeah. and that would be awesome. And You'd want to beat the fuck out of him, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, but, I mean, he'd have that prison experience. <laughs> so it would be extremely tough. But I think I'd have him. I honestly think I'd... Uh, Everyone I, would be rooting for you. So I you, know, but then if I lost, fuck. From episode 48, Dr. Paul Wood.
One of my favourite contrasts I've had, Dom, is I did this this corporate speaking engagement at the Royal Yacht Club down the road from mm-hmm. here, and it was for a real estate company, a very high-end, and the amount of Rolexes in that room, mate, unbelievable. <laughs> Every type you can think of, right? The next day, I'm going into the prison environment to talk to people in there about one of the programs I'm involved in and to you know encourage people to sign up and go along. And I end up going into a high-security, non-compliant block. So this is basically the prison within the prison where people end up here oh, where they okay. get kicked out of other parts of the prison. The worst of the worst. Worst of the worst, non-compliance, right? And I go in there, and the staff member who's in charge of it goes, look, we can't have people unlocked while you're in here because it's too big a risk of uh, security breaches in terms of inter-gang rivalry, but also hostage situations. We never have more than four people unlocked at a time, and we can't have them unlocked when you're around. So, look, I'm not really sure we can do this. But after a bit of negotiation and a bit of chat, what they decided is they agreed that, okay, well, what they would do is they'd have everyone locked up, but they would open their meal slots in their cells. And your meal slot's about halfway down the door. And that way, people can put their ears to the meal slot and listen to you while you stand in the middle of this block and just yell if you want to do that. Really had to like read a room and gauge right. how you're doing as a public right. speaker. Hey. And then, like, the staff member's like, hey, look, I don't know how this is going to go. I think, to be honest, people will shout you down and that it's a non-compliant block. It's, you know. And I said, okay, well, look. Yeah, I'm fine with this. I really want to give it a go. But also as well, man, I've been in maximum security prison. And, and yeah, when you're in maximum yeah. security prison, you are always treated as a risk to be mitigated. And you've earned that, right, through your previous bad behavior. But I also know from personal experience how powerful it is to have someone treat you as a normal human being and to give you expectations to live up to. That was some of the most seminal moments for me in my prison experience is having people treat me with respect and with expectations that I was a normal person. Mm. And so what I did is I said, look, okay, we'll do this. But before I speak, is it okay if I go around all the cells and say hello to everyone? Because what I want to do, Dom, is I want to make sure that people know that I'm treating them as a human being, that I respect them and that I accept them and I want to connect with them on an individual yeah. level before I speak to them as a group by yelling while they're at their meal slots. Yeah, and sure, surely immediately there's a li- Little certain level of respect, knowing what you've been through and that you've come out the other. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. But also, not everyone's going to know who I am or yeah. anything about me. There, you know. Again, people inhabit these small worlds, and so this is standard operating procedure, right? You never put your hand inside a meal slot, right? Because then you're at the mercy of the prisoner who can just grab your arm, break your arm very easily. Mm-hmm. But what I think to myself is. I'm going to give everyone expectations to live up to here. So what I do is I walk up to the first... It's a lot of trust. Well, well, I'll tell you what it is, man. I I know I'm engaging in risk, but I also know that this might be one of the most powerful experiences that someone in this situation has Mm -hmm. in terms of people treating them as a human being and giving them expectations to live up to. A lot of them have never experienced that level of trust, Dom. And you can't expect people to learn to be independent functioning members of society if you don't give them opportunities to stuff up, if you don't give them a little bit of trust. Yeah. And so I walk up to this first cell and I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. And the first cell is this uh, gang member with full facial gang tattoos, eh? And I walk up to the cell and I immediately go, hey, my bro, shove my hand in the meal slot, right, and shake hands with him. 
And here's the funniest thing. Within the first, like, five seconds, he goes, hey. And then straight away, he does the ultimate prison thing to do, which is to go, hey, chuck your shoes in here. Give me your shoes. Why is that the, uh, the ultimate prison thing to do? Because shoes are the only things that you can get which are personalised. Right. You wear prison uniform right. and everything else. And it is just what such were you, a classic, What were your shoes? Were they, like some Nikes, like, bro. Some Nikes. Oh, could just, he see them, though, and tell I, them? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But even then, if he could, it wouldn't have mattered, right? right you right. know, but... He's like, immediately, I oh, chuck your shoes in there. And I just cracked up laughing and said, no chance of that, bro. And then, I kid you not, within 10 seconds, he's immediately onto this. Oh, hey, you know what it's like to be in here. Hey, um, can, can you give me an address on the outside that I can send to, get a stash sent to that you can bring in? This is within, like, the next 10 seconds. And I just laughed and just said to this guy, bro, you got so much hustle. If you use the same amount of energy and hustle towards something legal, you wouldn't be sitting in here and you would be cashed up. And he thought that was hilarious. And I went around every cell and shoved my hand in and said good day to people, and no one abused that trust, and people were so appreciative of the effort that was mm. made there, Dom. Yeah. And then after that, you know, I went and spoke in the middle of the block. But the contrast between those two audiences, the Rolexes at the Royal Yacht Club versus the non-compliant prisoners in high security, you know, couldn't be more different. From episode 49, the delightful Kendra Coxedge from the New Zealand Black Ferns. Sarah... She also gave me a couple of nicknames to bring up, and um, what, I actually feel a little bit awkward about both of them. One of them, one of them, I reckon I can probably work out, even though it seems kind of mean. The other one, it seems really inappropriate. Do you want to guess what? Well, one's going to be Minge. Yeah, Minge. Yeah, one's Minge, and everyone thinks it's real juicy, but it's it's not. It's just back in two thousand and eight, I was in Australia. And we're over there for Black Ferns and Kala Huepa was my roommate. And, um, you know, back then you got a phone and you had to change your SIM card. You know, you had to put a SIM card in it like mm. when you got to a different country. Yeah, like a local SIM, yeah, because yeah, the, so, um, yeah, the data roaming was yeah, so expensive. Yeah, so I chucked another SIM and then I had to ring Vodafone Australia. And um, and I just had it on speaker because, you know, you take forever sometimes to answer mm. the phone. And then um, they answered and they were like, oh, I was just saying, you know, how you wanted to activate the, the SIM card. And then they asked me, what, you know, what my name was. And I was like, oh, Kendra. And they're like, how do you spell that? And I was like, oh, K-E-N-D-R. And they're like, oh, what? So M-I-N-G-E. And I had it on speaker. <laughs> I had it on speaker and then my roommate, <laughs> my roommate, Carla, who ever heard it, and we just lost that. And that's how I got the nickname. Because you're from, um, I don't know if this is like a, a, a regional thing or a provincial thing, but I'm, I'm from Palmerston North and a minge was like a vagina. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. So when you okay, call so. it to me, it's like, uh, like sometimes even Smithy at one stage, he didn't even realise he called it, he called me Minge. So this is Wayne Smith, the, uh, yeah, the coach. <laughs> the goat, the, the yeah. professor. Um, but I, a lot of people call it, and now it's just it's just a big joke. And there's, you know, it kind of dies away, but then it comes back in again, depending on who's around and and in the environment. But um, yeah, it's 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 funny. It's just funny when coaches start calling it like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> and the what the other nickname? Any idea what that would have been? The, this one, this one. I f- I feel mean bringing this up. Well, I'm interested to know what it is. And this is Alma. Yeah. Yeah. So that one. Elmo is, and when she sent that through, I thought, why would she be called Elmo? Your, your voice is a little Elmo. Yeah, that's it. So when apparently when I laugh um, a lot, you know, when I'm cracking up laughing, I I sound like Elmo, and that's what it came from. <laughs> that, that came from a teammate. What 2007? I think. Canterbury. Yeah. Wow. And, and then just because I was like, and after rugby, I'd be like red and. 
um, you know, well, Ticklish. a redhead, yeah, yeah <laughs> all that stuff. So um, that kind of stuck. But then that one's kind of actually that one's died out. Has it? In the environment, yeah, yeah. it's just neither Kendra or um, sometimes people call me Kendra, and I find that so weird now. What like, Kendra? Yeah, my, my Kendra, my name. Like you know, it mm. seems kind of weird um, when something you called by your first name. It's like you know, you know, is that mum? Like even my <laughs> Am mom, I in trouble? Even my mum doesn't even call me that. But um, what does your mum call you? She just calls me Kendra. Kendra, yeah. yeah. No, she doesn't call me Minge. She call me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, okay, so how have the last two weeks looked? Like, we're we're recording this, and I think it's like a, maybe eleven days, twelve days since you won. The Rugby World Cup at Eden Park, that massive, massive game, right on, just like the semi-final, right on full time. You beat England. How, what's been happening since then? It's it's been awesome. It's been it's been incredible, actually. Like uh, my phone's been running hot. Um, I've been doing a, a lot of media, and I just I just want to ride the wave while we can and, and get women's sport and women's rugby out there. And um, there's been a lot of drinking, to be honest. I <laughs> um, I didn't I put. I only gave myself like three drinking passes the whole year because I just wanted to put all my eggs in one basket to win this, you know, win World Cup and, well, to make the team to start with. And then now I've gone and drank just about every day since we won, um, just out with mates having a wine. I went out for dinner the other night and um, there were six of us and, you know, I had two um, two lovely couples um, send a, uh, two bottles of bubbles to the table, you know, and, like, it's just people were just absolutely fizzing over it and, and so excited. And then even just on my way here um, from the airport, you know, the, the cab driver was... Um, he was so excited to have me in his cab. You know, he's he's from he's from Egypt, and I just think it's so special that we've just inspired this whole um, the whole country and the whole nation and the whole world really, and the amount of people that are popping up and and um, that are you know getting photos in the supermarket. And you know, a lady came up to me yesterday in the supermarket, and she just started crying, and she was just wow. so impressed around how much we have inspired her and her 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 daughter. And I'm just like, I do you want a hug, like. You know, she's just crying, and then I, I just don't think it real. Like, I really hope that the girls realise what we've just done, and I probably still don't really realise what we've just done. Yeah, because I guess, um, yeah, I was thinking about you the other day. So you, you've been in four World Cup campaigns. So what year was the first one? Uh, 2010. 2010. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't even remember that at yeah. all. Actually, I don't remember the the three before this one. Yeah. And I'm guessing, like, from a player's perspective, like, can you feel or notice, like, a difference in all four campaigns in yeah. terms of like awareness or the snowball effect, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like a t- twenty ten one, you know, like even just rugby was wasn't women's rugby wasn't even really a thing. Still, like it's bizarre. But um, you know, when we won that and, and it was in England, we came back and there wasn't a lot um, from media. We didn't have a lot of media interest or anything, or even our resourcing within the team. And then twenty fourteen is funny enough. We actually didn't go very well. We lost to Ireland in the pool play. Um, so we didn't even get near the final. And then all of a sudden the media jumped on that because we had lost. Um, and then 2017 was massive, so that was in Ireland, and that's we came back and there was a lot of media on that. But there's nothing like this one, um, being at home in New Zealand. Um, I think there's actually a photo like, um, floating around somewhere of our very first media conference the start of this year and there was one microphone on the table at the conference and then myself and Ruby Tui did the last one um, the Thursday leading into the final and there was like I'd say like 16 to 20 um, phones and, and microphones yeah. at the media conference. So the fact that the media is getting in behind it and everyone knows about it and everyone's telling the stories of these wonderful, my wonderful teammates, you know, they're all fantastic people and you actually get to know them for who they are and there's no, they're straight up, there's no mm. there's no hiding behind a wall of, or anything, you know, the girls are, are genuine um, and that's what I love about them and that's what's probably kept me going back year on year. 
You could have another World Cup in you, but it feels like you I mean, I suppose everyone's goal is to leave the jersey or leave the team or leave the environment in a better position than what you found it. And, God, you've definitely done that, haven't you? Yeah. And, and the growth that you've seen in that time. Yeah, the growth I've seen has been huge. And, you know, it's, honestly, it's been it's been incredible from when I first made it. And we got leftover men's clothes, under you know, the under-20 men's team. We got, Did you? Yeah, leftover stuff. We didn't stay a very nice accommodation. We had two tests a year. Generally against Australia. They would have been flying your business class, though, like the guys. No way. way. You're less than economy. You're right at the back. Um, And then, yeah, and then now it's like, you know, we've got so much result. Like, we had probably two coaches, a manager, and a physio back then. And Mm. now we've got like 18 management that Mm. support us. And um, there's obviously a lot of resource and funding within, you know, in the high performance hubs and that around the country. And it's just like, it's honestly, it's been incredible. And I'm so lucky that I've got to experience the mm. amateur uh, into the professional mm. and I got to have a year of being a full time rugby player. Yeah. It would have been nice to have it longer, but, you know, I can't play forever. Well, I mean, geez, you probably could. <laughs> so back at the time, so when you're wearing like the, you know, the, the hand me down men's clothes and, you know, you're staying in shitty accommodation and stuff. Are you are you like angry at the time or bitter at the time about the lack of respect? Or? No, I think it was just when through that that time you just you, you didn't really know any any different. I think is probably back then. Um, you kind of just did, and you're just happy and grateful to be playing for your, your country. And um, and then as the years kind of got on, and you know you're looking at the, the 2014 World Cup, and you know there's getting a little bit more support, but it's still really slow. Mm. Um, so you, there's probably times when you just go a little bit like, oh man, it'd be awesome if we got that, like the guys, or you know, <laughs> you kind of compare Imagine yourself, if we had but... brand new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, it's, yeah, like the support's definitely it's growing in that space, but it's just been very slow. Um, but now it's the last few years, it's just absolutely taken off, and it's yeah. probably been a big part of why we've actually been successful, but I still feel we've got a long way to go. From episode 50, Paralympic rock climber, Rachel Meyer. So the leg, so when, you must have been wrestling with that decision for years. So the surgeon says, oh, we don't advise you to do this. How long were you thinking, I want to do this, but I I know it's not the right thing to do. Like before you reach the decision, that's like, right, let's go, take this thing off. Like how many years? I'm guessing it's years. No, no, <laughs> no. I think I just got to a point where I was like, "Oh, geez, I'm done. Like, I don't want any more surgeries. Let's just lob it off. Just lob it off." <laughs> oh no! And I, um, and I asked. Like, as soon as I got to that point, I asked straight away. But I also knew I would be probably told no the first time, and um, and sure enough, I was told no. And so I waited twelve months, and then I and during that time I made lots of really inappropriate dark humor jokes about cutting legs off, which probably made people feel really uncomfortable. But it was kind of my way of adjusting to the the probably new me that was coming. Mm. And then I asked a second time, and by the time I got to the surgery day, I was just honestly I was so excited for it. And um, attitude with there to film, so I have a really beautiful film of my amputation morning which sounds like a weird thing, but it's really nice to have that. And for me, it was a, I guess, a process of letting go of something that wasn't serving me well anymore. Mm. And maybe that's a bit of a... Actually, there's probably a metaphor with, <laughs> metaphor with and, my life. And, yeah, uh, yeah and a, a bad relationship that you're in. Something, yeah. that, that, something that you love, something that's a part of you, but something that you just know is toxic to you. Yeah, it's pretty hard to let go. But then once you've made the decision, it's quite freeing. I remember there were two points I cried on the morning of my amputation. Um, one was when they came and put a, or went to put a fluorescent pink return body parts sticker on my wristband <laughs> because I'd asked to have my leg back and it's currently in my wardrobe. 
Um, what, the, no, no, the actual one? The OG, yes, the actual Lakers. It's very Jeffrey Dahmer-ish. <laughs> what do you mean it's in your wardrobe? Shouldn't it be in the freezer or? No, it's cremated. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh that makes way more sense. It's ashes. <laughs> oh, okay, because here it's I am not thinking, pickled. <laughs> thinking like there's this decaying leg with like blowfly lows on Well, so I had this dilemma. <laughs> We're getting sidetracked, but it's a great sidetrack. I had this dilemma where I felt like, you know, talking about letting go. I was ready to let go, but it's not rubbish. So I didn't want to just turf it out with somebody's appendix and some old guy's prostate cancer. Like, I don't need it to just go up in the incinerator like that. So I kind of wanted to hold on to it. And then I felt, well, you can't, like, I can't put that under a tree in the backyard because one day I'm going <laughs> to sell the house and move on maybe. And then the next family and their mum's going to be at the kitchen peeling potatoes one day and her four-year-old's going to come in waving a leg skeleton <laughs> and then there'll be a homicide inquiry into me, but I'll just be off in Europe somewhere climbing. Like, it's going to go bad really quickly. So I rang a crematorium in Wellington. Uh, it was a fairly awkward conversation. I forgot to explain that I was having an amputation and I just rang and basically cold called them and said, hey, uh, I'm calling from Whanganui. I was wondering if you could cremate a leg. <laughs> guy on the other end was like, uh, just the leg. I was like, yeah, yeah, just the leg. Uh, a, a human leg? I was like, yes, yes, just a human leg. Must and then something like a radio stitch a, up or Well, that or someone's disposing of a body part at like, you know, <laughs> 15, 15 different, different crematoriums. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to quickly oh, I, think, I think the crematorium that gets the phone call about the head to be amputated. That's probably a bit Question. suspicious. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sketchy. Uh, yeah, so that's in my wardrobe. Where were we? Okay, so I was. Oh, I, no, no. I had a good oh, cry. I just, I just want to sit, sit on this for a second. So, <laughs> like, in terms of co- charging you, is it like 10% of a body? Or like- <laughs> that was the question I had to ask. How much is it going to cost me? And then, the next cheaper, question, right? and then the next question was um, okay, so that's awesome that you can do it and it's not that expensive. In fact, I think the answer was. <laughs> We could probably do it on the back of an actual crematorium when we already have the fire going, so we won't have to fire it up just for your one leg, so that'll make it cheaper. And I don't think they charged me in the end at all, which was really kind of them. Um, So you thought it was going to cost you an arm and a leg, but then... I was able to negotiate. (laughs) Just the leg. (laughs) From episode 51, boxer, businessman, ballroom dancer. Not a very good one. He didn't go too well on Dancing with the Stars. Shane Cameron. You mentioned before that you um, you did some sparring with Mike Tyson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah. when was that? What was the yeah, story? That, that was, um, if we're talking years, that was in 2005. Right. Yeah, I went over there, um, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, that was my connection. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, so I was there for two, three weeks, three weeks. That was, that was an eye-opener. That mm. was the man, and Tyson. He's actually a really nice guy. Really Is he? nice guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just really, yeah, but it, I can see he's one of those guys who either like you or he doesn't like you. You know, so he sparred... Um, most days and very ferocious. He's, you know, he's got that high pitched voice. Hey, hey, Shane. Hey, do it, Shane. You're all right, man. Yo, I've not swear. Yeah, all he does is swear. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh mate, it's a, yeah. it's a podcast. You yeah, can say yeah, what you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're crazy, motherfucker, man. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize they breed crazy white guys like you down in New Zealand. You're crazy. But I remember we were sparring. <laughs> we were sparring. Yeah, and then um, we're, um, we're, you know, we're going, and like, 
sparring's really heated, you know, like. So when you when you say sparring, um, it's not like gentle punching. You, no, no, you, no. You go eighty percent, ninety percent, oh, yeah, like, no, like hundred percent. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like he's trying to knock me out. You know, he's probably thinking, who's this? Who's this white kid man coming down from New Zealand and want to try and spar me? Right. You know, probably the mentality I have when I spar anyway. You know, who do you think you are? You know, so you come across the ring, man. He's just trying to take, yeah, take, take, take my head off. You know, uh, and then the next spar, uh, next day. He hit me in the groin area, so he's throwing some heavy shots and hit me in the groin area. I said, hey, Mike, watch the low shots. He goes, sorry, Shane. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, how did the baddest man, baddest man on the planet go, sorry, Shane. Well, but, but he's, uh, you know, shit, man, he's um, he's, he's, a, he's a trooper, right? He's, uh, he's, he's the man. What a claim to fame, being punched in the dick by Mike yeah. Tyson. <laughs> how good is that? Oh, yeah. From episode 52, Ian Winson, incredible story this one, became a double amputee after an explosion at work. Watching people run on a crisp early winter's morning is is, is a very mind-blowing experience for me because I do, I do, I miss it. I do miss it, mm. without a doubt. But because uh, although I do hand cycling and I swim and I go to the gym and everything like that, it's a completely different feeling and workout that you get when you run. Um, you know, running with your legs is is completely different to hand cycling with your arms. You know, but um, I'm you know I'm I am pretty blessed because I've I've done all the stuff that people dream about. You know, I dream about running a marathon. I've I've done a hundred k walk. I've done a hundred k half walk, half run. Um, I've done I've done all that kind of You're stuff. You're talking pre accident. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've done all that. So I I don't um I don't sit there as some people would, in, if they weren't an athlete beforehand, thinking, oh, I should have run a marathon, or I should have done this, or I should have done that. You know, I, I'm lucky enough I did do those things. Um, That's so. a good attitude, but you, you, yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You can't do those. When you, were, when you were lying in that hospital bed and, you, you know, you became fully aware of the extent of things, like, were you, were you depressed for a time? Um, no. I've, never, no? I've only cried once, and it was uncontrollable for about 45 minutes, and that was about, uh, must have been about five weeks after the incident. Um, just one evening, I just started crying, and I just couldn't stop crying. And and then after about 40 minutes, I stopped crying, and that was that. And that's the last time um, I have felt any kind of... Uh, Morning or yeah, grief. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I miss, I miss not having legs. Don't, without a doubt. Mm. I mean, that's and the, the weird thing is, is that they're still with me because of the, the phantom legs are there. The feet are there. Everything's there. I can bend them. I can, I can move them around. And so, and that's and that's the trouble I have at the moment is that I can't actually, I can't get rid of them. Um, so it's. They are. How, how do you mean? Can you explain that a bit well, more? It's hard for the, um, yeah. So the the thing is, because the legs are there from a phantom point of view, right? It's very difficult for me to cross over it into into the I have no legs kind of like story, and that's I, so I sit on the fence like I, I'm still I still feel like I'm fully able, but you know the legs are not there if I'd go to stand up. Mm. So it's, it's a it's a very very difficult one to to explain to people that. And that's why I say I don't actually feel disabled, um, and I don't actually let I don't want to actually or try let my disability um, stop me from doing anything. Oh, and you don't. I've watched your I've watched yeah. your journey from afar. You yeah. definitely don't. You're living so, a very very rich and know, fulfilling life. Yeah, ten ten years of trying to walk on prosthetics is still is still the goal to run um, on blades. Um, 
it's still one of my goals that I'm actually working towards. Um, it's just that because of the way that my spinal fusion was done in 1993, um, we've had some technical issues with the prosthetics, but we're getting over those. Um, and yeah, that's it. If I can get to running a hundred meters or 200 meters on blades on a track, then I'll be happy because then I've, I'm actually doing what I used to do because I started off as a track runner. Wow, you're still here. Good for you. Thank you very much for listening and making it all the way through this summer series. Sort of like a recap episode of the guests that we've had on the podcast this year. If you like what you hear, please um, give the show a rating if your podcast platform allows or write a review. Or if you don't do so already, please subscribe to the podcast or on Spotify, click that little bell button. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Appreciate you being here. Hope you're having a fabulous summer holiday. And we'll see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.